Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what is mind uploading? Mind uploading is this idea of taking a human brain and, and translating it into software, uh, at which point it can then be stored and copied and uh, reloaded from backup and basically exist indefinitely. And of course, practically speaking, that would require scanning a human brain, scanning all the relevant connections at a very low level and of sufficiently high level of resolution and detail that you could then build an emulation program in a computer that could, you know, quote unquote, run that brain scan uh, as if it was a real human mind uh, and produce a thinking being inside of a computer. It's like the digitization of a mind by uh, sufficiently well copying the, the mechanical brain into, into a software simulation. Right. And this is a topic that's been sort of discussed in science fiction and by futurists quite a bit. And I, I did a little research trying to track down uh, some of the earliest mentionings of it. The earliest time I found was... Not surprisingly, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, one of his uh, earliest science fiction works in 1956 was a book called The City and the Stars. And in that book, there's a city in the future called Diaspar that's run by a central computer and it stores all the citizens in the city, their minds inside of a, a computer uh, oh. and builds bodies for them. And most of the people in the city have lived multiple lives and not every mind has a body at any given time. Some of them are just sort of stored in the computer. So it very much is this brain-uploading, mind-uploading concept in science fiction. Huh. Another mentioning of it was uh, there's a relatively well-known biogerontologist uh, named George M. Martin who wrote a paper in 1971 dealing mostly with gerontology issues, but he has a sort of a passage in that uh, where he gets very science fiction-y for lack of a better word. And he talks about how the ultimate solution for immortality uh, is basically mind uploading. I mean, he doesn't use that exact uh, term, uh, but he talks about having sufficient technology in the future to actually get like a readout of the stored information from brains and then putting that stored information into a computer to create humanoid post-somatic bioelectric hybrids that are, you know, capable of sort of continuing the human race indefinitely. So this idea of mind uploading was like very much associated with ideas of immortality, it seems like, from a very early point. Right, um, right. Uh, another person who talked a lot about mind uploading, although he called it transmigration, which <laughs> is a term that has kind of religious connotations, uh, is Hans Moravec. Uh, we've talked about him before on the podcast. He's, you know, a roboticist and an AI researcher and so that, that same guy, Hans Moravec, has always been a futurist, and he wrote a book called Mind Children uh, in 1988, and he takes sort of Moore's Law and, you know, puts it in this giant context that, you know, extends way before the dawn of man and way after, you know, man is irrelevant, and basically creates this trend to history of this evolution, right, um, that sees us evolving into a new artificial species around 2030 or 2040. And the way we get there partially is through this transmigration into computers where our brains become digitized. And then he talks about all the kinds of crazy things that can happen to minds once they've been digitized, about how they can be copied and the copies can be merged. He takes the whole idea actually pretty far. And this is all in uh, uh, 1988. 
And then later, uh, Robin Hanson. Robin Hanson is an economist, and he wrote a paper called, well, I don't know if it's a paper, but it's at least an essay called If Uploads Come First. And this is, I think, going to be important in this podcast. This is the idea that uploading a mind into a computer and sort of getting to artificial intelligence by that means right. might be easier by than... By mimicking biology rather right. than designing from the ground up. Right. I think this is a, this is a right. ma- major like reason why this is an interesting topic in the first place is that copying a human mind doesn't, you know, copying in general doesn't imply understanding. Right. The mechanisms of the mind could remain a black box, but we could still have working e- emulations, uh, possibly. Sure. Like, right, right. Like you can imagine, like, maybe I don't know how to read, but I, uh, you know, am a really good artist or something. And I, you know, you hand me Romeo and Juliet and I can... I can copy the shape of the letters and I can reproduce that entire play right? Uh, in a way that someone else could read it and understand it, but I don't understand it at all. Right. You don't even need such an st- extreme example, right? It could just be written in a different language. Sure. Right. So if, if you only spoke Spanish and it was handed to you in English or vice versa, you'd know all the letters and you wouldn't know any of the words. Right. So maybe we can, you know, just sort of brute force, scan all the important details in a human brain uh, find a way to model those details uh, at sufficient resolution inside a computer, but not really have much of a theory of how, you know, artificial intelligence or thinking even works. Right. Uh, which puts us in a potentially weird place that uh, Robin Hanson has continued to write quite a bit about. And hopefully on a future podcast, we'll get more into detail on that. Right. Yeah. He's got a lot of great ideas about that, but it all does come from this assumption, which he's had for a while and has published uh, several times before, that... That's going to be easier to do than building a brain from first principles, uh, which it remains to be seen which of those uh, paths is going to be actually easier. Another science fiction author who I like quite a bit, uh, who's written a lot about this topic going back to 1994, is Greg Egan. Apparently, this topic figures a lot in his book, Permutation City. I haven't read that one, but I have read his book, Diaspora, from 1997, in, in that book, uh, people who are still, you know, sticking to their, their physical form are actually like called fleshers, right? Uh, and a lot of people upload themselves sort of into these, these cities in the stars that are called polises, at which point they become sort of uploaded minds. And he's created this whole world around that. Um, and so he deals with this concept of sort of human minds as software in, in great detail. But anyways, a lot of those examples were, were futurists with far-flung ideas of what's going to happen and maybe you believe them, maybe you don't. And some of those are just sheer science fiction, uh, quite literally. So, you know, how actually feasible is, is mind uploading? And um, a lot of futurists seem to think that this might become possible within the next century. And, and as I was talking about earlier, it's maybe more plausible than us having a huge breakthrough in terms of how intelligence actually works. Because in a way, the path to mind uploading is a much more sort of linear process of continuing to get better at things that we already do on some level. Like we already right. can scan uh, to a certain level of quality. Uh, we already can do, you know, simulations and emulations of biological processes to like a certain level of quality. Right, right. And I think they recently did some animal neurons or something in a computer. So it's... Yeah, there's, yeah. There's, there's, there's some progress toward being able to emulate a brain in this sort of dumb, non-understanding way um, that we've seen recently. Right. And I think, I mean, the scanning technology, you know, tends to improve over time, you know... 
now there there obviously are challenges, but uh, it doesn't rely on any you know wildly big epiphanies that you know a particular person would have to have in terms of how this stuff works. It just requires that the technology keeps getting better. And there's a there's a pretty long paper called the Whole Brain Emulation Roadmap. I think it's it's pretty easy to find online. Um, although it's like 150 pages long uh, by by Sandberg and Bostrom. And that actually kind of goes into detail, just basically laying out like, okay, where are we today? Uh, what are all the things that we would need to make this happen? And how actually plausible is it? And uh, I won't go through all of them, but it talks about, you know, some of the things that we would need to be able to do. Obviously, like some of the challenges, you know, prepping and handling the, the brain tissue for scan while not overly damaging it. You know, just having enough resolution to capture the smallest relevant details of the brain, capturing the whole brain not missing anything. To me, then there's sort of the, what I think I would think would be the hardest part is actually interpreting that scanned data, uh, which is basically just image files, right? Giant, giant image files and, and uh, trying to extrapolate from that what the like simulation relevant parameters are, right? And also dealing with all the artifacts and noise and inevitable stuff that'll happen in that process. And then boiling that into a mathematical model of how particular neural entities behave, neurons and synapses and hormones and, and that type of thing. And then, of course, the actual rock computing power to take that very large set of data uh, and actually run it in real time. Although um, that's the one I'm most confident will be able to like do. That seems like the easiest step, That seems like actually. the easiest step of all of them is you just wait. You just wait and that will come. But all the other things uh, sound like they require at least a little bit of a paradigm shift in how we're doing things now and are going to require innovation to happen. They're going to definitely require some innovation, but again, they don't seem like, you know... They don't seem insurmountable. They don't seem insurmountable if you're somebody who had a lot of money and wanted to invest in this. Like, it seems like there's a way forward or there's clear avenues to pursue, or maybe clearer avenues than there would be if you're just sort of trying to completely create artificial intelligence from scratch. But yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, the, in that last step in the actually running the simulation, yeah, the computing power is easy to, to handle. But you also have one thing to keep in mind, too, is you have to have, if you've got a mind, that's one thing, but you have to have the, you have to simulate a body, maybe, and possibly an environment for that body to exist in. So that's an extra challenge, although that... Yeah, but I still think that's doable. I mean, that just, that adds to the total. But even if you have to simulate a whole sort of world for it, it seems that that should be the most doable part of that process compared to, say, non-invasively scanning uh, at the cellular level or something like that, which may be necessary. I mean, we don't know exactly how much resolution you need to make a brain work in simulation. That's something we have to figure out, but we can imagine it's probably at least molecular scale, so that's pretty small scale. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that up because the, the level of resolution or level of detail it is a big question, right? So, you know... The, some of the projections in the paper, like they can be really clear about, you know, what would it take to get to the sort of neuronal synaptic level? But that may not be good enough, right? I mean, right. we may need, you know, a much lower level than that. Um, and there's there's disagreements about, you know, like how much of the brain do you actually need to copy before you right, get something Right, that, because a lot yeah. of the brain isn't necessarily engaged in higher function thinking. It's more uh, autonomous systems and such. You may be able to simulate those at a lower level of resolution and well, just get the outputs that you need, like 
you're well, continuing to breathe. And well, so yeah, some things might be able to happen at a Rui, like you, you wouldn't need to copy them in great detail at all. But some, like a whole section of the brain, might be able to be reduced to a single simple algorithm. Right. You might there might be like you know modules of the brain right. that you could really boil down to something simple. Uh, but if you're actually trying to copy a whole mind and its memories and its personality, it might be that, say, like neuronal connections aren't enough, right? And you need, you know, things that are smaller than neurons and things that are within the neurons and stuff to capture that properly. Right. You know, again, obviously a lot of brain research is needed. But anyways, the final conclusion of that particular paper is that, you know, we need some increases in microscopy resolution. We need some improvements in, you know, automation for for scanning and image processing and we need to you know yeah really this problem of what are the functional properties of neurons and and synapses um and then we also need what it calls business as usual development of computational neuroscience models and computer hardware yeah it was basically the the standard basically wait and wait and see on on that yeah so the paper ends up sounding pretty optimistic uh about how this will be feasible um, and, and things are happening today. I think uh, a lot of people are familiar with the, the Blue Brain Project, right? Which is, doesn't have exactly the goal of creating, you know, an emulated mind in the sense that we're talking about. But it is trying to create uh, a simulation, a computer simulation of uh, uh, parts of a sort of a mammal brain. Um, its first target, I think, is, is uh, like one cortical column of a rat brain. Uh, the obvious place to start here is with animals yeah. um, and simpler organisms. Uh, there's something called the Open Worm Project, uh, which is sort of an open science project to, to simulate C. elegans, which is a, a worm that's often used in research, and to basically simulate the entire worm down to the cellular level, in, including its, uh, its nervous system. And so that's, that's actually emulating an entire organism, not just a mind, but it's, you know, it's the same type of uh, uh, pursuit. Right. Uh, it's a very simple organism. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, again, that's where you would want to start. Of course. There's a uh, organization called CarbonCopies.org. That's a nonprofit organization. That's kind of a cheerleader for you know having whole brain emulation. It's run by this guy uh, Randall Kuna, and uh, I've read some of his essays, and he really thinks that you know this is super important for the survival and future of the species. Like he's really excited about this, mm-hmm. um, and so. And so that sort of ends the portion of the podcast where I just wanted to give an overview of it because. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have talked about it, and you know, some people are think this is a way to immortality. We've mentioned that a couple times now. Um, some people, like this guy Randall Kuna, are really in favor of it. Um, but there's a ton of philosophical questions here. I, yeah, know, it gets to the real, to the heart right away of like what is identity, and yeah, um, it it's uh, an extremely confusing uh, and mind mind breaking thing to think about yeah Uh, um and and it's it's i think you know it's not necessarily something that i feel positively about i i do on one hand and then on the other hand i see issues with it and i think it makes some people uncomfortable and some people really excited um so it's it's really a fraught issue and so i i want to go through some of the some of the specific issues with it um uh, one is the idea of a sort of a not a destructive scan versus a non-destructive scan right well this is a big issue and this was recently dramatized in that movie uh transcendence right which i still haven't seen i i didn't see it either but i I read a script of it uh you know before uh it was made and uh 
he dies, the scientist dies, and he's uh, scanned into the computer as he's dying. So the computer that wakes up is the resurrection of the dead scientist. Sounds like a, t- a typical it's, mind uploading setup. It's yeah. A, yeah, it's a mind uploading setup in, w- in which it's a destructive scan. So there's no point at which there's both a computerized Johnny Depp and a living Johnny Depp in the same Right, so it doesn't movie. deal with that particular philosophical problem. Right. Now, if it's destructive is actually probably the more likely way forward, uh, or so it seems now, right? Because there's sort of a slice and dice approach to scanning <laughs> that actually does have proofs of concept that exist. I mean, that's basically how brain scanning would work now, given today's technology. If you were, yeah, if you were given like, uh, you know, you have an unlimited budget and we have to scan the president's brain or something, you would have to kill him to do it these days. Right. Yeah. Um, So maybe in the future, there might be a way to somehow scan non-destructively. But for now, it doesn't seem possible. Right. And, you know, there's uh, if nanotechnology is, is one way that you could do this non-destructively. If right. You had, if you can get robots past the blood-brain barrier into the brain, they can scan from in there. Like basically scanning from the inside, yeah. Right. Or some technology might just be able to do a higher resolution functional uh, scan with, uh, you know, with high energy waves like we do scanning now, but we haven't figured out a, a system that'll work. Uh, yeah, that, that paper that I referred to earlier talks about, you know, really, really high resolution MRI scans of, of frozen brains um, as being a, a possibility. But again, this is beyond anything that we could do now. But yeah, I think even if it is destructive, it will have volunteers. I mean, that movie gives the obvious example of a terminally ill person, you know, right. might just say, what the hell? <laughs> Put me in the If you're, if you're already terminally machine. ill, right, it's, uh, it starts to make a certain amount of sense. And or just especially enthusiastic, daring, uh, you know, technophilic people that, you know, think that this is the way to immortality just may not just may just sign me up, you know? Right. Um, so and that's interesting because that selects for a certain like if you want to imagine what the first population of uploaded minds would be like, uh, if it's a combination <laughs> of terminally ill people and like really enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, and then, you know, obviously that. Some would say that that population of uploaded minds is sort of like the next evolution in, in humanity. So if that's that's who the next step is, is defined by those people that are willing to go through this destructive process. It, I don't know, it just yeah, implies so, things about where we're going. Right. Well, they might create a really interesting culture on the other side. of People who've all been given a massive second chance. Right. Now, I mean, if you don't do it destructively, then of course you have the this totally other problem of now you have two exact individuals with the same memories and the same personality and that both think they're the same person, which, right. I mean, I mean, that is what it is. I think it's just, you, you clearly, I, I think philosophically you have to see that, that that is just two individuals at that point, because, you know, they're just going to, uh, split off. Um, well, we don't have like, objective proof of this but that is the assumption that i make uh based on the way the world seems to work is that those are two completely different consciousnesses which also implies that in the destructive setting that that uh, thing that wakes up inside the computer is not you that uh, it might look like you to other people and it might act like you and from the exterior perspective of the world it might be like there's still a you in the universe uh, and maybe that's important to you, but as far as your subjective experience, I don't think that thing is you. Yeah, I mean, this comes right to the the heart, the identity issue. Like a lot of these people that, well, a lot of the, the science fiction stories 
uh, talk about like it, like you're moving, like you're, and literally the term that uh, Hans Moravec used, transmigration, implies that you're moving, right? Like that you're moving your mind into another substrate, and that it, but that it's still you. But I mean, the other way to look at it is you just you killed one consciousness and then you created a copy of it, and and you did not make that transition, right? Yourself. You instantiated an identical consciousness, right? But it's still a new consciousness. Like, like I think there's an assumption or a belief among some people that a consciousness is such a specific type of pattern that wherever it's instantiated in the universe, in whatever substrate, it will always be uh, the same thing. But I, I guess I don't buy that. I think you can have the same pattern repeated, even a complex pattern, in two places in the universe and that they're not inexorably linked through the tunnels or anything. So... Uh, they just become two copies of the same thing in the universe. So I don't know. I mean, this is a philosophical thing, and we'll guess like I guess we'll like see when this technology comes out. If uh, you know, if you make a clone of yourself, uh, if the clone always feels oddly connected to you, as if you two are the same people, and you sort of naturally share experiences despite not being physically connected to one another, then maybe uh, I'm wrong, and consciousness uh, exists on a sort of universal substrate but um i i'm gonna assume for now that that's not you <laughs> right that's something that thinks well it's you. although it's a little more yeah it's it's here's the problematic part of it and i'm sure everybody has heard the the sort of philosophical description of how there's a sense in which you now is not literally the same matter as you six months from now because it's just the, the natural churn and and death and rebirth of cells and material as like parts of your body die and parts of your body get replaced and uh you know you ingest nutrients and excrete others and sort of uh, basically you're not literally the same matter that you were and so something that is perceived as identity does persist independently of the actual physical matter. Now, that's not to say that there's some, you know, silly idea like there's a soul or something, but that, like you said, pattern that like somehow... Right, no, what your consciousness is, is definitely to some extent independent of your physical being. Right. That's clearly... Uh, to some extent, the case, and and so that one, some people would object to that on principle because of sort of it sounds dualist. It sounds like you're saying the mind and the brain aren't the same thing. But I think the way out of that is that to think of the the mind as like a pattern of connections or arrangements rather than as a right. The way yeah. that Jeff Hawkins says this right is that the mind is what the brain does. Right? It's not that there are different things. It's that a mind is like a process and a brain is a machine or an organ. Right? Is that sure. that it's um. You know, a, a mind is, you can, it's a pattern. It's a kind of very complex uh, input-output pattern uh, that is performed by the brain and could be performed perhaps by a computer. But the idea that if the same pattern is performed by a computer that used to be performed by a particular brain, that that magically creates the same experience for the consciousness uh, inside that substrate, I don't quite buy I still think that sounds like it would be two copies of the same consciousness and that from the moment the instantiation in the computer occurs, it will start deviating in small ways from the human instantiation based on its differing experience. Now, if you do this destructively, right, so you don't have the problem of actually literally having two beings, which, I mean, when you have two beings, it's fairly obvious that one being just copied itself and essentially had a child and then you have two consciousnesses to deal with. 
But right. uh, if you if you just get if you do get rid of the original copy as you're scanning, right? Then what is the conscious experience of that entity across the gap? And it seems like you're not going to get an answer to that because if you ask the the new uploaded being, it will always tell you, well, the last thing I remember is you know being put under general anesthetic for my uh, mind uploading procedure. Right. Of course, the new thing thinks it's you. It's never going to not think it's you. So you really won't ever get a straight answer to this question. They're going to say like, yeah, I went to sleep and I woke up and now I'm in a computer. Right. They're going to accept it the same way you accept sleep or anesthesia. It might feel a little weird in the way that those things sometimes do, but uh, but they will think they are you. Uh, however, you know, you can't prove either way that the experience that they're having would be continuous for you, for the person that you are now. Right. And from where I'm standing on this side of the procedure, like it looks like death. It looks like don't, don't sign up. Like, is right. it, I feel like I will die. And then something that's claiming to be me will right. go on. It's uh, credibly claiming to now, be Now, again, you. if yeah. I'm terminally ill, if I feel like this is the only way towards the future and otherwise I'm going to be left behind, then for the same reason, uh, somebody might write a, a memoir to try to achieve immortality that way, or might have children to try to achieve immortality that way. You right. This see- seems sort of preferable to either a memoir or children because this child will be even more like you. Right. Uh, that you won't have to teach it everything you know. It'll already know everything you know. It is sort of like an upgraded child. It it is a way to kind of live on in right. a sense, but it it I it also but only in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> the in a sense is important. Part. Right. I, I think. Now, I, here's how you problematize this, though, even further, right? right? Because I start to become a little more comfortable with the idea, and this is really technically difficult, and it is discussed in that uh, whole brain emulation roadmap paper a little bit, which is the idea of gradual replacement, right? So right. if you could, as they're you know, scanning parts of your brain, uh, they're like... Like they're scanning your brain gradually, right? Right. And I wonder at- if this is easier to discuss with the teleporter metaphor rather than the brain scan metaphor. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I don't know what you mean, but... Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but l- let me just run with this and then okay. you can cut me off if I'm, I'm wrong. Like, okay, so we've talked about this in uh, using a teleporter metaphor in the past, and I think that might be an easy way to think about it. You think about yourself going in a teleporter which is like uh, the Star Trek one. You stand in it, you disintegrate, and then somewhere else you reintegrate, right? That's the thing that feels like death to me. Like that first teleporter kills you, and then some other teleporter copies you. But imagine a teleporter that is like a big, long, uh, scanning uh, slicer that, that rolls slowly across the room, and your uh, hand is in the teleporter on one side, so you are, your hand is in the spaceship, and the rest of your body is here on Earth. And then it slowly moves toward you, and a little more of your arm is on the spaceship. But you can feel, it's like your blood is flowing between the new one that's being created and the old one that's still on Earth. And it goes slowly enough that you can feel being alive on both sides and experiencing the migration over, right? Yeah, it's kind of like that, but focused on, on, on the brain, because like you know, it's one thing to have your hand sort of displaced and cut off but then you almost feel like you know once it crosses right, but then your, it's gonna cross your your head right yeah and then you'll be seeing out one eye it's on the spaceship and one eye is on the earth you know and then right. both eyes are and then you're on the other side that starts to sound a little bit less scary and a little bit like uh, not as much like death and more like a transformation 
where you gradually become the other thing. Yeah, I think that that is sort of does sort of make the point that I wanted to make, which is that I mean, obviously, we're we're not imagining a, a teleporter. We're imagining, you know, we're talking about mind uploading. But the reason I thought that was easier to imagine is just uh, you can imagine it sweeping across, sweeping you. across you. I mean, the the idea of being half in the digital world and half in the analog world is a little bit hard to uh, wrap your wrap my brain around. But I guess it's the same idea. I mean, it it you know it would require sufficiently advanced technology to really have the analog and the digital communicating although there's you know there's rough proofs of concept for that i mean this none of this is necessarily impossible it is again just like the non-destructive scanning seems more technically difficult than the destructive scanning this gradual scan would be even more difficult but if it right. was possible it would make it less scary i think to people like me uh, because it does seem like that normal process that happens throughout life of you having turnover and changing your cells just sort of sped up, right? But not sped up to like an instant, you know, but sped up to like sort of it takes, I mean, you know, however long it takes, an hour or something to... Right. You're, maybe if you're, especially if you're awake during the process, it will feel like, uh, you know... Who knows what it will feel like? Honestly, well, that's the question, but. right? If you if you do this, you might find that there's a speed past which it feels different or something. I don't know. I don't know what you would find. Obviously, whatever you ask the person who's on the other end is is always going to be the same. But the subjective experience of the person being scanned might change potentially, and we don't we don't know yet what that'll be like and and where the where the limits might fall but i i would be more comfortable with a gradual scanning process either one that happened because of like you know distributed nanobots in my body or or something like more like the dramatic laser scenario we were talking about i would probably prefer that to an instantaneous dissolving i wonder if your center of identity would at one point like your pov would shift right uh to where like we know how, like, if you put, like, since you talked about scanning one eye and then the other, like, if you were to put your, like, hand between your eyes, right, right like, you could tend to only look out of one eye at a time, sort of. Well, you can sort of see both and it sort of blurs, right? But then you can also, like, give... Well, you can tell which one is your dominant eye by doing that, right? Yeah. Like, uh, I wear glasses, so on my glasses, I'll see the frame of one glass, but not the other, which means that's the eye I'm looking Yeah, and at. if you force yourself to really see both, it's, like, a little bit disjointed and, and, and weird, but... Right. Um, so I wonder if that process would be like, first you would feel like, like your identity was primarily centered in the, in the analog world. And then at one point your perspective would just jump, just like jumping from one eye's perspective to another. And you'd be like, oh, now I'm primarily digital. You know what I mean? So yeah. It might maybe. still be like an almost instantaneous part of that process where you're like, oh, I just shifted over. But immediately you would, you would rationalize and be like, well, I guess I made it, you know? So. Right, right. You'd feel okay about it and you'd be continuing to like sort of experience whatever was left of your physical self as it uh, went through the machine. So I don't know. It's, uh, it's a really interesting problem and it's one that you may as well think about because eventually you might have technology like this and you'll have to make a decision about whether uh, you want to get in it. But anyways, you know, uh, I would like to live forever, sure. That sounds good to me. Uh, we've talked about that before in the podcast, but yeah, this is not my preferred way to do it. So among the people that are, you know, sort of championing this idea as a form of immortality, maybe it's a form of immortality for the human race. Maybe this is what will allow the human race to survive indefinitely as a species and it will be to necessary. I totally accept that. But for me personally, I'd rather find 
you know, more typical sort of approaches right? Uh, to just sort of extend my cell life and, and keep my physical body right. running. Right, and maybe have robots in my body that are there to, like, pr- repair it and help it out. I'll rather take a than, robot heart, you know, if that's right. going to be better. Rather than uh, necessarily replacing the whole body with robots. Right. Um, I agree. And I think, yeah, absolutely, this seems like a great way to uh, enable deep space exploration, for example, which takes way longer than a human lifetime and would almost require something like uh, right. scanned emulated astronaut brains to to work you know uh, so I'd be definitely in favor of developing this technology and allowing people who want to do it use it but I uh, think I'll be staying out of the scanning machine for now thank you <laughs> another thing is um, I want to talk since we've already practically gone there I think we might as well go into uh the issue of consciousness more directly, right? Uh, so uh, consciousness is obviously something that exists, but we can't explain it whatsoever. Um, and it's not, you know, someone could point at the emulated brain inside the computer and say, uh, I don't think that thing is conscious. I'm not willing to treat it as conscious. I don't think it deserves rights. I don't think it's really feeling anything. Yeah, sure, it's acting like it's feeling things, but I don't, I don't buy it, right? And uh, you might ask it, are you conscious? And it'll say, yes, I am. But, uh, you know, you'll never really know for sure. I mean, we can take it on, on faith that, that we're conscious because, you know, everybody knows their own subjective experience. And you can sort of take it on faith that the other humans around you are probably conscious because they, they're so similar to you in their biology and, and, and physical matter that, you know, that seems like a reasonable assumption. But once you start actually porting minds to a completely different substrate, the question is, do you lose something? Since we don't know where conscious comes from, uh, maybe we didn't copy the part that had the consciousness, right? Sure. Um, and there's, you know, there's a bizarre, uh, <laughs> there's a variety of bizarre theories about, you know, where consciousness might exist. I mean, I think the simplest theory is that consciousness is this emergent property that, right. like, once you have a, a sufficiently complex pattern that's sort of, you know, generating uh, thought, that it just kind of creates consciousness, right? So that, so that if we if we do copy a brain at a sufficient resolution. Uh, that it can think and talk, then it will, by definition, also emergently be conscious. Right. But that may or may not be clear. Like it might be possible to that those that intelligence and consciousness are two separate things that you can literally have. Well, it's the, clear from the existence of computers that it's possible to have intelligence without sure. consciousness. It's not clear that it's possible to copy a human brain and instantiate it without consciousness. Yeah, that, but that's possible. It could happen that way. We won't know until we do it. Well, there's two problems with that. Well, one, well, one problem is that we don't actually know that our computer programs aren't conscious. I know that sounds silly. But well, we, that's true. But we quite literally don't know. If it was an emergent property, then... We can't really test. But we haven't experienced any strong evidence uh, to the contrary. But it, it seems that if you mimic the way that nature did it, which produced consciousness, that you're more likely to get consciousness... To, to than, end up with it for whatever reason. Right? Yeah. Um, and again, but we don't understand where that's coming from. And... Um, there's that guy, Stuart Hameroff, who, like, believes that consciousness, you know, comes from, like, the quantum level, like, interactions yeah. that are happening inside the brain and stuff. Yeah. And, I mean, there's all kinds of crazy theories about this stuff. And uh, there are people who would argue that you can study this stuff empirically because you can look at moments when people aren't conscious. Like, you can look at what happens to their brains under anesthesia, etc. Right. Um, and there are people who would say this is a completely non-empirical question almost by definition that you'll never be able to answer this question because because it's about subjective experience right that's hard to report so i mean 
whatever the case is, we don't understand it now. And uh, the thing about consciousness is, I think what's much more important is how we're going to practically deal with it. And I look at the way that people treat their dogs and their television sets and their computers. And I think if things act minimally conscious, we're just going to treat them like they're conscious. And I'm not sure that that extends to giving them all of the rights that you would give a human being in today's modern world. But then again, you know, we didn't even give human beings all those rights pretty recently. So I think humans are definitely capable of denying rights to people for immoral reasons if it benefits them. So I don't know if it extends that far, but I think as far as our interactions, our day-to-day interactions with either brain emulations or sufficiently powerful AGI that seems to sort of act in a conscious type way, I think we'll just accept their consciousness well, practically. One one practical effect of that, though, is that uh, if we buy these things as conscious entities, then I think it will it might impede research that would actually make this possible in the first place because. You're not yeah, going to achieve right. mind uploading without a bunch of false starts and, and failed attempts to sim- like half simulate minds and stuff that maybe don't quite work well. And, and maybe they are partially conscious of that experience and maybe it's unpleasant for them basically being, you know, Frankenstein into existence. Right. Well, that's interesting. And that's something that science fiction obviously deals with a lot. Uh, the unpleasantness of a, of an emulated mind, um, uh, David Marisek's stories deal with that. Sure. And there's, I can think of some other things. Um, you know, I mean, we don't know how much we're going to know about the brain when we first start doing this. You know, uh, after a while, you would hope that we figure out how to at least make um, unsuccessful brains happy, <laughs> if not useful. It seems like we'll want to make them comfortable at um, the moment that they convince us they're they're conscious, at least, or at least they appear to feel pain and we'll feel bad. And like you said, practically speaking, we'll just be nice to them, whether we can prove they're conscious or not. But Yeah, I think so. And I think but there's that interim period where we're just trying to figure out the technology. And in the meantime, we're, you know, we're creating possible beings that didn't ask to be created that are that we we don't even have the capacity to to make happy right say. To, to 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 debug if they don't work we basically just have to delete them right right it's, uh, yeah that's pretty interesting I think uh, so you could object to this whole line of research on ethical grounds I right think. if you're really convinced that those things are in fact conscious then you could easily uh, object to this on on ethical grounds especially if you don't think that the identity is preserved like because you might have a really you know enthusiastic volunteer who is terminally ill and signs a release and there seems to be no uh, ethical problem with uh, scanning and emulating their their brain but then if you accept that the new sort of mind that you're creating in the computer is actually a new person right they didn't sign that release not really uh, or, well, <laughs> well, they remember signing it though, they so were, maybe they well, did. Yeah. See, like I think the legal, uh, the legal uh, angle on this is actually super interesting. Which right. is assume that this is a conscious being that you're affording rights to. Uh, they're going to say, "Oh yeah, I signed that release." They're going to believe that they signed. Yeah, it. I guess you're right. And so, uh, so they, they may regret can, it though. <laughs> they maybe can still be held to it though. I'm not sure. Uh, and that's really interesting, especially if the result of your um, faulty early, you know, early uh, on scan is that like you know their instantiated mind goes insane every time or something, which like is something that science fiction authors have imagined for a, and it makes sense. It's a kind of uh, a kind of failure model for a brain, so um, it, it makes sense that it might uh, exhibit itself like mental illness. Then we'd be 
you know, causing these beings this horrible distress. And I think there'd be a moral imperative to delete them once you realize they're, they're crazy like that. Uh, but uh, you can imagine the researchers wouldn't want to do that. They want to yeah, keep doing I'm, their research. I mean, the more you think about it, this is just like a sea of thorny, like ethical and legal issues that honestly could could prevent this from happening on this sort of optimistic time scale that these futurists tend to predict. You know that this will something like this might happen that this century. Um, I think if we start getting close to doing something like this, you know, it could really spark a big cultural debate and uh, i know it's sort of hard to stop technology from moving forward i mean this is much more challenging to you know human culture especially if you're doing it without the understanding like it's one thing if you have a broad theoretical understanding and you're pretty sure you can uh prevent any distress to the subjects and stuff but if you're doing this the way we've been thinking about it the way that it comes up earlier than agi is if we can just get the scanning technology and sort of bootstrap our way into it and it does seem like a a tremendously unethical, potentially, line of experimentation. Right, and that could slow funding of it, too, if people become aware of those issues, which would economically slow it down. Although there are, as you know, Robin Hansen points out uh, in his writing, tremendous economic benefits to pulling this off as well. So there are, there oh, are yeah. incentives on the there other side. There are definitely side. incentives to pulling this off, and you would imagine that places with... Uh, different ethical take on things or uh, different types of power structure might just do this uh, against the will of the people who are involved in the experimentation and uh, just not worry about the ethics. And so you'd have to weigh that against any potential limits or bans. You know, we might be better off doing it here in uh, America, let's say, where we have relatively stringent controls than letting it get done in a some dictatorship in the Middle East or something where uh, where they'll be doing it on prisoners or something. <laughs> yes, you know? yeah. If it really turns out that the consciousness, when is revived, does have continuity with the original person, I mean, that is incredibly dark because that means you have the potential to essentially uh, torture someone indefinitely. Uh, I mean, you can you could create literal hell. Uh, well, that's a that's, whole different. Right? I mean, that that is still true. I think even if it's even if the identity isn't preserved. Or you're talking about if consciousness is preserved. Right? I'm talking about if consciousness is preserved. Yes. Uh, so right. So if if the consciousness is not preserved, you can still you can still torture a copy of someone, and that might be really valuable if you wanted to say learn information that the, uh, that the original person knew. But the original person wouldn't feel the torture. If, if there wasn't consciousness, then that's a weirdly humane way to torture someone, actually. Right, right. If you can turn is, the consciousness off and just torture the uh, the unconscious copy of the then person. Then it's a way to get information without creating the experience with, of pain right. in, in a conscious being. But in I think, but being, I think right. you know, uh, that's that's crazy because the fact <laughs> that, the, that the emulated mind would so prefer to not feel your... Uh, digital torture that it's going to give up information it that it doesn't want to give up. It implies that there's pain somewhere anyway, right? It implies that it at least has preferences. Like, I think, you know, like, there's that, uh, and that, you, you ever read that David Foster Wallace essay, Can Consider the Lobster? Right. And he just sort of talks about, you know, like, why, you know, it almost maybe doesn't matter. Like, if, because people argue, like, it's fine to boil lobsters alive because they don't feel pain. And, and he, he sort of says, like, well, who knows if they feel pain, but it's clear that they would prefer not to be in yeah. the boiling pot. They scream while they you're doing it. They try to get out, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, like, the emulated mind, you know, it, it has a preference. It's <laughs> acting on its preference. Who knows what it's feeling? But the preference alone would imply that you should behave a certain way around it and maybe right. not torture it. Right. Yeah. 
Um, so, but anyways, yeah, I mean, the, the incentives might be such that it's really, uh, that you end up in a, a race to do this stuff regardless of ethical concerns because, you know, this is a powerful technology and a tremendous source of, of labor. And if you sort of like buy Robin Hanson's worldview, then you're really not going to be able to compete uh, no, you'll just be giving up on the future if you don't do it. So yeah. that's strong, that creates strong incentives for people who have uh, the means to try this to try it. So anyways, the, uh, the last thing I kind of want to talk about on this podcast is what, um, what sort of happens after this. Uh, and to me, this is really wrapped up with the idea that we brought up earlier, which is opacity, right? It's a, so there's two ways this can happen. Or it's not really two ways. It's more of a spectrum. It's like once we've created these uploaded minds, how well do we understand how they work, right? Right. So, I mean, on the extreme end, it's like we have this gigantic set of like legacy code that's in a computer now. Right. And we can look at all of the lines of code, but we have no idea what any of it means. And we can sort of change stuff at random and empirically observe what happens. And maybe it'll speed up research. But like I said, that that's an ethical hornet's nest, right? Because if you just start changing lines of code, then God knows what that does to the experience of the of the mind itself. Um, although you could do that with like, you know, these uh, non-human organisms first. Obviously, you would, you would first test this on emulated animals, which, right. which it'll be interesting to see how PETA responds to that. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but so like, you know, in a sense, you know, at least having that legacy code in a computer and being able to tweak it and see what happens, that might that might advance research toward actually understanding what's happening. But that is a pretty big extreme where it's like we suddenly all of a sudden have emulated minds, but we're not any better at understanding intelligence or artificial intelligence. Right. Well, the more hopeful side of things, right, is that uh, maybe these emulated minds, we run them pretty fast, we set them on the task of figuring out how brains work and... They provide the breakthroughs for us. Maybe. Right. Well, that's the other thing is, yeah, if right? you scan the world's greatest neuroscientist uh, once, then you can copy him, uh, you know, thousands of times and uh, you can give him a virtual workspace. Right. Make a whole company of him yeah, to you work on this problem. And then you can actually, if you have the computing resources, you can actually run his brain faster than real time so that his whole world appears to him, you know, to be going... Uh, the same speed as our world, but it's actually going faster, you know, and then uh, you might be able to get more man years out of, out of him. Right. Than, than otherwise. Which I think is something, a possibility that, that sort of Robin Hanson's book doesn't discuss that I think is interesting, but also. So he he, talks about uh, processing speed. No. Well, he does talk about that, but he doesn't talk about what if you just put all, like all these emulated brains to work on the process of decoding themselves. Right. He does. He assumes that that's not the. And that's, that's not what they're going to mostly be used for. That's thing. So, and, right. Well, I right. guess what I, where I'm trying to go with this conversation is like, how long do we end up in a world where we just have emulated minds as oh. its new status quo? And I feel like that's not a stable equilibrium point. And I don't even think Robin Hanson thinks it lasts that long. But you know, it's not stable because one, you know, even at the extreme where we don't understand anything, we have all this code to experiment with. Uh, and we can generate virtual teams of neuroscientists and run them thousands of times faster than a human and right. put them on the problem. And honestly, w- by the time we do this, we also might have a slightly better understanding. I mean, if we're a little more optimistic, we might have a greater sense of like at least how different modules or subsystems of the brain work. 
See, the question is, like, how much can you tweak the mine once you upload it, right? I mean, chances are it'll be a long time before we can just, like, dial up a certain personality trait or dial it down. It's not Right, because be- those things are so abstract, and we don't know the connection to the physical and right. electrical parts of the brain. But you might be able to take, like, different discrete modules that make up the brain and sort of reconnect them at sort of a much higher level. Right, right. 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 Or it's maybe even possible that the engineering difficulty of simulating a brain and creating a simulated world for that brain will teach us so much about the principles of operation of the brain that we'll have an AGI breakthrough. We'll have the theoretical breakthrough we need to start building brains from principles. Uh, And then in that case, you can build just pure mathematical models. They can be much more efficient. They can potentially run a lot faster uh, because they'd have much lower resolution if if they actually just mimic the correct principles. Uh, but we've never been able to figure out what those principles are. Uh, by deduction, we may have to uh, send the virtual neuroscientists on them for a generation, but maybe we'll figure that out just by the process of building a bunch of these brains. Right. Um, no, I think, yeah, it's just going to be know? a huge boon to brain science to be able to do this. And so I think, I agree. I mean, what I'm trying to say is I think, to me, it still feels like all roads kind of just end up leading to intelligence explosion, which is a a topic that we talked about earlier on the podcast many, many episodes ago. Right, right. And it's not clear that it... Right, it's not clear exactly how fast this stuff necessarily explodes, but it does seem like it gets faster rather than slower. That the each of these plateaus that we're imagining leads to the next plateau kind of naturally. Uh, right, and intelligence explosion is the idea that the the better... I mean, we get at sort of, you know, creating intelligence, whether we're doing it in this, you know sort of brute force emulating fashion or whether we're doing artificial intelligence, eventually that becomes sort of a feedback loop where the creation of more intelligence is actually helping us create more intelligence. I mean, we the, the example we just gave of creating a team of artificial neuroscientists is exactly that concept of right. sort of a positive feedback loop where you've created more intelligence, which is then helping you solve the problem of creating more intelligence. And then we end up in that uh, theoretical sort of Werner Vinge you know, singularity point where we don't know what happens next after that. Where, uh, yeah, a new intelligence that's unimaginable in scope comes online in the universe. So. And, and then we, and then, you know, it's a totally different world. Right. Uh, okay. Well, I think, I mean, that's all the things I had to say. Did you? Yeah. I think we got to the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's everything that we could think of to talk about with mind uploading. This is a rich topic. And uh, I mean, just the philosophical implications are, are pretty endless. But that's an introduction to it. As always, uh, thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, and please leave us a comment or send us an email. We love to hear from you. Uh, and thanks uh, for tuning in. And uh, we're going to leave you with a quote from, from Jeff Hawkins uh, on why mind uploading won't happen or it won't be a good idea. Imagine if I went up to you right today and said, you know, you can upload your brain to this computer. Do you want to do it? And you say, yeah, sure. And I say, yeah, I want to live forever, you know. And then he said, okay, we did it. And then the computer comes out, hey, that's great, I'm awake. And I said, we're done with you, we can get rid of you. And he said, whoa, wait a second, I'm still here. I mean, it's, it's like, <laughs> you're not going to feel so good. It, and in the end, then those two things will, will diverge. It's just like, you might as well just have kids, it's the same thing. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.